Hey everybody, just a quick note before we get started. In two weeks when we'd normally have a new episode, Chloe and I will be taking the week off for the holidays, so please enjoy the holidays yourselves and stay tuned for a new episode in early January. All right, hello everybody and welcome. You're listening to Talk Clean to Me. I'm your host, Joe Karen. And I'm Chloe Holzinger. And today we are sitting down with Drinkwell. We're very excited. Uh, this is one we tried to do in season one, um, but we couldn't because it had to be our first remote interview. So you might notice the audio quality is taking a little bit of a dip. We're sorry for that, but uh, we know it's going to be worth it because this is a really exciting startup. Uh, we're excited for you to hear about. Um, so if our guest could now please go ahead and uh, introduce himself. Hi, guys. It's really exciting to be here. So my name is Minhas Chowdhury. And I'm the CEO and co-founder of Drinkwell. We're a company focused on transforming the global wider crisis into entrepreneurial opportunity. Cool. I love it. So, Minaj, so tell us about the issue that you're trying to address. The World Health Organization calls it the largest mass poisoning in human history. It's the arsenic water crisis. And so when we look at Bangladesh, it, Bangladesh is a very young country. Uh, basically, 1971 was when the country earned its independence from Pakistan. And there was a big issue of infant mortality, where a number of children under the age of five couldn't make it to their fifth birthday because what turned out to be a issue of safe drinking water. And so what the World Health Organization did is, sorry, uh, the World Bank and a number of um, international kind of bilateral uh, aid organizations did was drill 10 million tube wells in the early 70s to make sure that your water source, if you were a young newborn in Bangladesh growing up, would actually be free of chemical contaminants. It was considered to be a fantastic success until 2000 when it was discovered that there were a lot of these wells, over 40%, that actually had arsenic, which is this um, metal that you can't see or smell, but if it's in your water, within three to five years, you'll get a cancer-causing disease called arsenicosis. And, um, and so it's been a very um, interesting kind of journey for me personally. Um, my grandpa, before I was born, passed away due to the water crisis. Uh, he was in the military and he was always traveling from uh, base to base. And um, I kind of, my parents always kind of instilled in me like this value of always knowing where you're coming from. And so they always kind of, you know, when I think about like a lot of my other friends who grew up in the U.S., they grew up very detached from where they're from, where they're, you know, as an immigrant family. And, you know, I'm really lucky that my parents kind of instilled that kind of sense of uh, of just kind of heritage. Um, because if you fast forward to kind of high school and college, when you kind of try to find yourself, I realized very quickly that, A, this issue in Bangladesh is clearly something that even to this day impacts 20 million people. Uh, and if you look globally, this issue of arsenic impacts over 200 million people. It's a particularly challenging issue, not just in South Asia, but even in parts of the U.S., in New Hampshire, uh, in the Midwest, uh, in Chile, in Argentina, in China. Um, and so as I was growing up, um, I kind of felt really um, at ease knowing that my parents instilled in me this kind of... because. 
one thing that kept on bugging me was the fact that I felt more American in Bangladesh and felt more Bangladeshi in America. And so um, what was really interesting, and I think this really helped in my journey with Drinkwell was just like, there's this big problem, but like there's so many amazing tools, technologies that I'm learning about in the US. How can I apply those in Bangladesh? Particularly because I actually have the language, I have the culture, I have the family to support me in this. So that's kind of just a very quick overview of the problem. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. I, I love what you had to say. I mean, because, you know, a lot of amazing technology exists and it's really up to creative people like, you know, like us and yourself to deploy those technologies in interesting ways uh, in order to solve problems. In a lot of cases, the solution exists. Not always. Right. Um, but there's a lot of progress we can make uh, by being more creative about how we deploy the technologies we already have. And for a little context for our listeners, so 200 million people affected by this crisis, just to give it a little uh, uh, context, uh, there are 320 million people living in the United States. So the amount of people uh, affected by this is about two thirds of all of the people living in the United States right now. So it, it is a humongous amount of people uh, being affected. So Minhaj, so I think just researching your technology, I think there's two aspects to what you're doing. And I touched on this, right? There's the actual test technical aspect of what you're doing. And then there's the creative way in which you're deploying it. Uh, so could you walk us through first one and then the other? Absolutely. So um, the when it comes to the technology, one thing that is really um, quick to kind of preface with is this concept of lifecycle cost. So it's kind of the idea that you could have a great technology that is quite cheap upfront, but then if you have to replace it every year, every two years, then if you kind of look at the total lifecycle cost of having that technology over 10 years, then you'll actually see that even though something is cheap upfront, it actually costs orders of magnitude more over the course of 10 years. Uh, the UN reports 50% of all water projects fail within the first two years. And I realized it was because most technologies have a very high lifecycle cost, not just from a financial cost, but even from a resource cost. Uh, you might need to import materials from abroad. You might need to have skilled labor. And so I was lucky enough to learn about this uh, technology that Dr. Arup Sengupta of Lehigh University had developed in Kolkata, India, in West Bengal. And so I, he was doing a Fulbright at the same time I was in 2012. And so I go to visit him and he basically has this ion exchange resin, which effectively can filter and selectively remove arsenic and fluoride, which is another big issue in India, from the groundwater while recovering 99% of water. So if you look at like reverse osmosis, which is kind of the best in class technology today that people really like to lean on, if you put 100 liters of water through that technology, you're only going to get 40 to 60 liters of safe water. And then the balance is actually this brine reject water that you, it's very toxic. And unfortunately in emerging markets like India and Bangladesh, there is no EPA enforcement. And so people just kind of throw it out. Um, and what was really interesting about his technology was if you put hundred liters of water through his ion exchange resin, you get 99 liters of safe water. And so you're being much more responsible in becoming a better steward of water. Uh, so what was interesting was beyond the efficiency, it's the fact that it's a gravity fed system. So reverse osmosis is quite energy intensive. We 
don't require any electricity for our process. So we can actually work in remote areas. And so basically, uh, the final kind of point on the technology beyond the efficiency, beyond the lower energy is actually the labor part. So um, ours actually, we've made it so simple that a uneducated rural villager can just change dials on columns. And so naturally, what we realized is if we want to scale this technology, we need to find a way to work with the government. And the government's typically a very, uh, you know, it's a nerve wracking, it's a very, um, you know, uh, fear filled sector because of horror stories around how the government's incentivized to see the paint dry, accounts receivable lags. And so what we really wanted to do is get creative around how we could work with the government. So what we ended up doing was we validated the technology through entrepreneurs. And that basically served as the showcase that, hey, this technology will actually work in the most challenging environments. So then the question is, how do you get to work with the government while de-risking the cash accounts uh, receivable lag is risk, de-risking the um, just slow nature of how they move. And so we came up with a licensing model. What we realized was the governments will issue RFPs or tenders. And in countries like India and Bangladesh, it's very challenging to work in these tender-based markets because, you know, to be completely frank, uh, there's a lot of corruption. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty around just when a tender will be released who's actually got the inside track. And that scared away a lot of investors, particularly in the US, who had no idea about how that market worked. So because of that just kind of um, risk that no one wanted to assume, we were forced to find how we could license our technology to contractors who are actually in that world, who have built successful businesses, who have cash in their coffers because they know how long it takes to work with the government. And we got into a royalty agreement where in which we gave the contractors the right to bid with our technology in exchange for a straight percentage royalty based on the contract. Um, and through that, we've gotten about $3.8 million worth of uh, government contracts. That kind of go-to-market was really what allowed us to scale and gain investment and really just show that what we are core focused on is manufacturing the technology and providing after-sales servicing we're not in the business of actually going and selling the water or providing the water because it's a very context-specific activity. So we're going to actually have our customers do that work. And then the last thing I'll say about our go-to-market is when we started in 2012, uh, there was one story that really inspired me. There was a female entrepreneur who had operated a drink well system who was really smart in how she operated the hours. She, unlike the other entrepreneurs who would only have it open in the mornings, would only have it open in the evenings because that's when she would be free. In the mornings, she would have to help cook breakfast, make sure the kids were in school. And so out of that pure kind of logistical issue, she had her operating hours open only when the fathers would, when coming home from the fields, be able to pick up the water on their way home. And so what happened was there was this one in, uh, evening where there was a Sangeet, which is kind of like event two of a five event wedding. All of the bride's cousins and all the bride's family members dress in really bright colors and dance the whole evening and have lots of music. And it's a very festive atmosphere. Um, and so this father collects for the first time a 
10 liter jug of water goes home, but quickly has to go to set up the tent for the Sangeet. He forgets to tell his daughter, who's 16, that, hey, I got this 10 liter jug of water. It's safe for us to drink. So when the daughter sees this 10 liter jug of water, this is so strange. I've never seen anything like this. Maybe I should shower with it. So she showers with the water and at the reception she performs. And at the end, everyone's like, oh my gosh, how's your hair so smooth? And she said, oh, well, I use this water for my shower. Sales went up 200% the next month. What was really interesting <laughs> was that like you as a entrepreneur will think that, okay, there are these go-to-market strategies. We learned these in school in terms of how to sell a product. That's what we need to do when we bring our product to market. So that's what I'm going to build into my marketing strategy. But what just by pure kind of random chance happened is we didn't actually go that deep into the marketing tactics. We left that open to the entrepreneur. And so what was really interesting was these entrepreneurs positioned our product, not just as a substitute to something that they could get for free, which is water, because you could just get it for free from a well, but they actually positioned it as a substitute to shampoo, detergent, as well as your well. And so um, what that allowed is for people to reposition willingness to pay for water as a kind of more utility product. And frankly, it was very controversial. I mean, the risk of having people buy your water and not drink it, but just use it for these other more vanity things was one that was too, too, too big of a risk for some of the more traditional kind of, you know, impact or investment kind of grant makers. And so I think, you know, one of the lessons we learned is like going to market, you open source a lot of things and some of the learnings might be so contrarian and so extreme that it might not even sit well with some of the people who you expect to, to fund you as your core kind of metric is people served. The way that you get there is something that your funder can't care about. What they are in getting on board for is that metric increasing. Because what we learn is that there are a lot of funders out there who actually care about how you get there as well. And that can really constrict just the sandbox that you're operating in. So that's a very long-winded answer, but that's kind of, yeah. I dig it. Yeah. So there's a few things I want to latch on to um, before moving on from that. The first is I loved how you used the word open source too for this network of entrepreneurs that you've kind of unleashed because it's the, the Drinkwell team is bigger than just your immediate team, right? It's this entire community of entrepreneurs. And once you've kind of uh, let the beast out of the cage, they're kind of free to be creative and be entrepreneurial on their own in ways you didn't understand and push the market and the channels and the strategy and the value prop in different ways. So it is a lot like an open source crowdsource approach to your technology, which I absolutely love. Um, the other thing I wanted to, I wanted to check my understanding. So what you did was found contractors who had their own little uh, nest eggs of money from the work they had done and who were familiar with how to massage the system in order to get these contracts. And what you're giving them is the ability to bid on these contracts with your uh, proprietary technology. Um, I assume you're making some money on that. And then you're also making money on the uh, after sale servicing. Your teams are going out and testing the water. Is that a, is that yeah. a, Accurate summation? Exactly. So I'll basically show two kind of revenue streams when I look at my, you know, financial statements. The first is the actual sale of our resins. The second revenue stream is what you said, you know, it's kind of this servicing where 
we'll actually every quarter send someone to collect a water sample to pick the tires and the technology and just kind of be there as a partner making sure because see ultimately when it comes to technology it's not a matter of if things will go wrong it's a matter of when so we just really kind of position ourselves as the kind of long-term partner of our customers what happens is we found that most of our competition and there's a healthy amount in this technology space will just kind of get an upfront windfall on the sale of the resin and then they'll just forget you because they've got a ton of market opportunity. Mm -hmm. But what we actually do is we undercut the competition by actually selling the upfront resin and selling the whole turnkey solution at near cost so that we can build our margin profile, build our revenue, mm -hmm. build our kind of traction and grow referrals through the servicing contracts month over month. And so that's the whole business strategy. So just to further clarify, um, so I come from a background, I study a lot of energy storage technologies. Wait, the easiest path to success for a number of energy storage startups is a licensing business model, um, which is pretty similar to what you're describing. Is the difference here who you're licensing to rather than, so you're licensing to more local community leaders rather than other businesses? Yeah. So I'll be honest, we at scale to solve this issue need to work with those larger partners. And so it's very difficult to get those large scale kind of folks to A, kind of believe in our technology and then B, even if they do, to partner with us. And so the whole idea is, okay, how can we start by working with these kind of local entrepreneurs? And then last year we started working with Tata Trusts and we looked at that as a pivot point to where we could shift from working with these smaller entrepreneurs to working with more kind of institutional firms that have a network to eventually get us to these kind of larger players. Um, so do you see yourself working with both those larger companies and the, the local entrepreneurs in the future? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it's already happening now. So one example is in Taka, which is the most densely populated city in the world. So Bangladesh, something Joe that you mentioned earlier was how, you know, there's 300 ish million people in the U.S. So imagine half of the U.S. in Iowa, and that's Bangladesh. Um, and Taka is the most densely populated city at 16 million people. So they have 40,500 people per square kilometer. And the utility company there is struggling to provide safe, reliable water to all of its, not just citizens, but even the incoming climate change refugees and all the low-income communities, people living in railroads, parks, um, living in slums with safe water because they're not living in homes that have piped connections. They're living in slums and they're squatters effectively. Um, here was an opportunity to kind of work with this large utility um, and give them the opportunity to directly kind of use our technology and provide uh, this uh, technology and a team solution across their network. So we just got a contract for a hundred systems. And so um, they're like, we're not working with these local entrepreneurs. We're working directly with this utility company um, through kind of local kind of staffing firms. And so the model really kind of will gyrate and change as we look at the different kind of segments. But what remains constant 
And what we say is the core of what we do is providing the technology and how it's kind of uh, applied in urban Dhaka versus rural Bihar versus um, we have systems in Kenya and Nepal really depends on kind of that market, if that makes sense. So what once you are in these communities, what has their reaction been? How have they received this new technology? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. So we've actually learned that parts of kind of Western South India, the people there are so used to this kind of a bit more bitter taste of reverse osmosis. They actually like RO, even though it's not <laughs> as efficient, even though it's more energy intensive. It's just a matter of how they grew up. Compare that with Eastern India, so Bihar, West Bengal, and then Bangladesh, which is also in that belt. People are not so attuned to that bitter taste of RO. They're actually used to drinking kind of well water that's contaminated with iron, and they love how our water tastes. And so what we've learned is that Eastern India and Bangladesh are our core market simply because of taste preference. And so... Um, we realized that if we want to have a shot at taking down reverse osmosis, we need to actually first work in Eastern India, Bangladesh, be the clear market leader. And once we have developed a uh, reputation there, we can invite people from Bangalore, Delhi, Mumbai to fly to Bihar, see how the customers love our technology, and then have a champion who says, I love what this is doing in terms of the cost, the efficiency. I would like to now help bring this to um, bank to Karnataka. And so that's kind of what we took away from that whole process. I have a quick question. Um, what are some of the challenges that are unique to running a franchise that's about 8,000 miles away from, you know, I think you guys are in Philadelphia, right? Headquartered. We actually have, our resin manufacturing in Kolkata, West Bengal, and we also have an office in Dhaka. So I actually spend about 90% of my year in India and Bangladesh. And so um, you have to be there. You just kind of have to show up to actually build the team, understand the nuances. Now, what we've done is we've got our technology in terms of the R&D happening at Lehigh happening in the US because there's just amazing lab resources. There's amazing, just kind of pure infrastructure, just little things like access to electricity that won't go out every eight hours, you know, um, little things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, what ends up happening is needing to kind of invest a lot in terms of communications, in terms of video chat, in terms of creating a culture, it's very difficult. It's something we still struggle with today. We've got 30 people on our team. Uh, it's about 20 people in Bangladesh, 10 people in India. Uh, and then we've got like three people as board members in the US. And ensuring everyone is on the same page aligned is extremely difficult when not everyone's in the same room. I can count on one hand, probably, the number of times even all of our co-founders have been in one room together. So what that creates is, frankly, a lot of challenges in terms of, you know, emails are very difficult in some contexts because you don't read the tone well or you don't get what someone's really meaning. Sometimes phone calls aren't possible because of time zone differences. So I'd say it is incredibly um, challenging 
you know, there are ways to work around it, but it, I will not lie, is definitely something that um, we continue to try to improve on. Um, I would say at the same time, one of the benefits is when you look at hiring, when you look at retaining talent, we found that when you hire local and Indian Bangladesh, people are willing to stay with you through, through and through. We're very lucky to be based in the U.S. because, frankly, that's where all the money is. You know, it's very hard to kind of build a clean tech organization, I think, just being based in India and Bangladesh, because the one thing I'll say is there's a lot of um, interest and passion and, frankly, capital available in the U.S. relative to some of the other markets where we work in. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm phrasing this broadly for a reason, Minaj, so interpret it however you wish. Uh, what, what do you think has been your most important lesson that you've learned over the course of this journey so far? Oh, man, I've made so many kind of, you know, mistakes. And just, I think um, something that in the very beginning, I wasn't very open to doing that now I'm very much comfortable with doing is just becoming a bit more ruthless, and not becoming so nice. Uh, you know, before I thought, hey, like, if you're going to join my team, I am indebted to you for making that sacrifice. So let's see how we can work together. But what that, what I find is like most people might mistake kindness for weakness. Sounds a bit cynical, but like, I think it's really important to actually be quite um, vigilant and just be very ruthless and just kind of have a very kind of laser laser focus on accomplishing something at any expense. So, you know, but you don't want to do that while being, you know, very, uh, you know, just a pain to work with, right? You don't, you don't want to be a jerk. So, you know, how do you walk that line? Um, so that's something that I struggle with every day. Um, I think the other thing I'll say is um, when you decide to build a business in a different country and hire there, uh, what's very interesting is in regions like India and Bangladesh, the talent is in terms of graduates not really ready, I think, to work. And they're not as critical in terms of their thinking. They're great in terms of accomplishing a task that has very clear steps. Um, because I feel like they actually, in their university system, reward pure memorization. And so you kind of have to have a lot of patience and kind of instilling and training. And, you know, one of the things one of our advisors said was, when you're a startup, especially in an emerging market, you have to kind of be a multinational organization from day one, because you know, like a quick example, there is no Stripe. There's none of these kind of beautiful services that can just stack up to be your back office. So you kind of have to be really um, thoughtful about how you're going to address those gaps and not, you know, wear yourself out in the process. So I don't know if that made any sense, but yeah. No, definitely. I get that. That makes perfect sense. So, um, Minaj, there's just one last section. This is something we're trying new for season two. Um, it, we're we're still in that take it or leave it mode, but it's kind of just uh, uh, Chloe and I um, giving our initial reactions on everything that you've said, kind of trying to put it in the broader context of the startup ecosystem, things that really struck us, and then giving you um, kind of a, a moment to share your your reactions on our reactions, and then uh, and then Chloe will take it home. That's great. Let's do it. Okay. Minaj touched on some really excellent points. You know, sometimes you're going to have to be the bad guy. You know, working with your team isn't all rosy all the time and not wasting time nurturing a relationship that's not working or relying on tactics that might be comfortable to you, but are obviously not working. Um, 
could end up being make or break uh, for for your team. That's something that, you know, I don't think I have a lot of experience with. So I'm kind of talking out of my ass a little bit here, but kind of just extracting from what uh, Minaj said, uh, I think uh, that was striking. Yeah. And I also think that a lot of these uh, issues are still important in a non uh, startup setting. Absolutely <laughs> important in a non startup setting. They're just enhanced by. Uh, the pretty much constant panic or stress of a startup. Um, but in particular, that ruthlessness versus kindness is something that I personally also struggle with. Um, people don't really take me seriously if I am too nice to them um, on the phone, and then they're surprised if I'm not so nice to them uh, in, in a review. <laughs> so, so it can be... It also gets me um, in trouble a little bit in in the non-startup world. Sure, uh, I feel you. I'm currently in, yeah. <laughs> um, so the other thing I'll say is, I don't know, I, this was really interesting for me because I had never thought of a startup kind of relying on a, on a franchise model. Um, so this just kind of, um, I think I... I, I this opened my mind a little bit to the types of channels and the types of business models that... Uh, a startup can employ in order to be successful. Um, and I, I think I need to spend a little time meditating on breaking out of those um, molds of how I think a startup has to operate. And I, I'd encourage our listeners to think about that too. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> cool. M Minaj, any, any reactions to our reactions? Yeah, no, I, this is hard. This is just straight truth talk right now. And, you know, I would say that one of the things, so two, two, two points. Number one was our first investor told us, told me personally that, you know, Larry and Sergey uh, from Google knew when it was time to bring in Eric Schmidt. And I think that's kind of, you know, his way of, of, of telling me, hey, like, you know, if you don't feel like you are that ruthless person, feel free to bring someone in. Maybe that could be a COO. You don't have to be replaced or maybe you should be replaced. Maybe you don't enjoy being that ruthless person. Maybe you should be kind of this more you know, strategy, visionary person. So I think, you know, there are very few CEOs who can make that transition where you're going from that pitch deck pilot to building a business with a team and mm -hmm. multiple functions and departments. Um, that's the first point. And then the second point I'll make is it's a twisty, wild journey. And, you know, we started with this idea of entrepreneurs, but we clearly learned that that's not what will actually scale our solution because you need to work with those other channels that have a lot more just capital, but within that involves a new set of risks. And so just being flexible about the tactics, you know, you're laser focused on the goal, but having that flexibility, and sometimes it's not going to really work in the smooth way that you envisioned when you built your plan. So being open to changing uh, is something that I think you need to figure out not just yourself, but also with your team of not just co-founders and team members, but your more importantly, your investors, the people who are on your cap table who you can't get rid of. It's not like a marriage because you actually can't get a divorce. So it's super important to make sure that everyone from your investors and your board through the frontline employees are all aligned in the fact that there are twists and changes and we all have to be okay with those and what the consequences of that might 
be in terms of returns, in terms of impact, in terms of lifestyle, in terms of geography, where you're based. And so I would say, you know, those are difficult conversations to probably have up front before you bring someone on board. Definitely. Cool. All right. I'm good. I'm good too. So in the show notes, you will find more on Drinkwell and Minaj. Um, and if you would like to support the show, please tell a friend, tweet at us, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, subscribe to us on SoundCloud. Um, just give us a shout out. Um, please, please give us a review. Uh, download our show. We really appreciate the reviews. Uh, fun fact, we have more reviews than my workplaces podcast. So that makes me feel good. <laughs> Um, have not quite told them that yet, and they don't listen to this podcast yet. So we will we will see when that gets. How many? Do you know how many reviews um, are we up to, Chloe? Uh was eleven the last time I checked. Oh yeah, eleven. Who doesn't want to jump <laughs> on that bandwagon now? You'd be crazy not to go and leave us a review. You can say I just you were think one of the original fifteen if you move quick. Twenty-five is really a much better number than eleven. Just yeah, hands down. I have opinions on better numbers. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, you can also sign up for our mailing list on our website, uh, talkcleanpodcast.com, uh, and please feel free to email us at contact at talkcleanpodcast.com. Uh, thank you so much for listening, Minaj. Thank you for sitting down with us. No, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, and I'm looking forward to following you guys. Cool. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks to all our listeners and uh, tune in next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.